Uh, do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can. We've got them in baskets uh, down by your feet. And get with me to page 924 or 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, uh, we're doing a series right now. It's called Game Changer. And we're looking at different spiritual practices and habits and, and even beliefs that if we embrace and if we build into the rhythms of our lives, they have the ability to change us. And, and uh, we're looking at things like, like prayer, and we're looking at things like Bible reading and, and different things like that. But this morning, we're going to look at this concept, and this really is the concept of Christianity, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. Christians are people who gladly embrace that and see it as the way of salvation. And so we're going to spend some time this morning looking at the cross and thinking through how it should inform the way that we live our lives. I think this is an area where we're under-discipled. And here's what I mean. A lot of Christians see the cross really as kind of the entry point to the faith, and then we get along with other stuff. We start getting after some other things. I want to suggest to you this morning that the cross needs to become a paradigm, it needs to become a worldview, it needs to become a way that we think about everything. And that's what Paul, I think, is trying to do here in this letter. He's writing to a church that's divided. Uh, If you look at the beginning of chapter 1, they are fighting over leaders. There have been different individuals who've been a part of their faith community, and so they pick sides and they say, well, I really like this dude. I like how he talks. I like, you know, the things that he does. I like his personality. And another person says, well, I don't like him so much, but I like this other leader, and I'm very excited about what he's contributing to the life of our church. And another person says, well, I don't like either of those jokers, but I, I'll follow Christ. And then you kind of have this division and, and the church is in need of help. And so Paul is writing to help them sort through not only how to be unified, but how to address all these different issues, ethical issues of how to deal with somebody who's sinning in a specific way, cultural issues, how to deal with these different cultural things that are coming up and tensions that are happening in their metropolitan city. And so he's writing to them. And what he's doing here then is he's trying to help us see if you understand the cross and how powerful that is. And if you begin to understand how that's not only just an idea or a concept, but it's a way of life, it will change you. It will change how you relate to each other. It'll change how you handle and navigate some of these issues. But you have to come to grips with the fact that the cross is the power of God on display in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So let's read it. Uh, we're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to go all the way into chapter 2, verse 5, and then we'll pray and uh, we'll get to work. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Let's pray. Lord, right now we ask that you would speak to our hearts that by your spirit, through your word, Lord, that you would change us even in this moment, that you would help us to understand the significance of the cross. And and even though it's very counterintuitive and it can even be labeled foolish, it really is the power of God that changes us. And so God, we ask that you would help us each to embrace it, to place our faith in it, to trust in it fully, and then to align our lives to that reality. So that even the way that we interact with each other and the way that we evaluate things is through this grid, through this paradigm, through this understanding of the cross that really does display that through weakness, you, God, display your strength. So help us to trust in the cross of Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Friends, there is power in the cross. That's what we find here in these few short paragraphs. We find that there is power in the cross that can and does change people that it, it changes our lives. We see that there's power in the message itself, that there's power in our personal experience of it, and there is power when we leverage that cross of Jesus Christ in ministry. So let's look at those one at a time. The first thing is there's power in the message itself. There's power in the message of the cross itself. It is the message that really does divide humanity. There are those who are believing in it, and therefore are being saved, and there, there are those who are rejecting it, and therefore are perishing. But it is that message that is so powerful that it can parse out all of humanity. So look with me at verse 18. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the message of the, the cross is this dividing line. People are either rejecting it and perishing, or they are believing on it and being saved. But it is a message, and that's one of the issues that people have with it. It is an announcement. It's good news of what God has done, and our human hearts do not like that. Our human hearts would prefer that we would be told what we can do. If there's a God, and we're supposed to relate to him somehow, please tell me the different steps that I would need to take so that I can have that relationship with him. That's what all the other religions of the world do. They give you a prescription. They tell you if you want to be a good person and if you want to be a good religious adherent, here's what you would need to do. And it gives you a prescription of 
be this kind of individual, do these certain religious practices, do them with diligence, do them with passion. But Christianity comes along and it says, here is an an announcement, not of what you have to do, but of what God has done when he sent his son. It's a message and that message changes things. It's not just like the 24-hour news cycle where you hear something and you go, oh, that's fascinating. And then by the end of the week, you don't even remember that. It's more of the magnitude of the kind of news that when you hear it, you know moving forward for the rest of your life, everything has changed. For instance, uh, Steve and I, we were talking about that Haiti earthquake back in 2010. And Ash, my wife, and my sister-in-law, Courtney, were both in Haiti that day, and they were the last plane to get off of the island before this huge earthquake struck, and there was huge catastrophe there. And getting the news of that earthquake and getting the news that the girls were okay, that's, the, that's what I'm talking about. There's, there's news that when you hear it, it's not something that you just quickly forget about. You recognize this is a game-changing reality. When you hear the news that God loves you and sent his son to die in your place, Though it's just a message, it's a message that changes you. It's the message of the cross, that he would go to a cross and die for you and die for me. That changes everything. But it's a message that is counterintuitive and that some people will look at and will reject. So we find that as a major theme here. You've probably noticed in my poor reading of it that wisdom came up something like 22 times in a short space. So it's talking about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. And the wisdom of the world looks at it and says, that doesn't, I I can't comprehend that. That doesn't make sense to me. I actually think that sounds pretty ridiculous. And so we're going to find here that the power of the cross is purposefully contrasted with how people would ordinarily define wisdom, the wisdom of the age and every age. And you guys know what, what that looks like. Wisdom for us means intelligent, strong, powerful, influential, noteworthy, those sorts of things. But at the cross, we find this kind of very counterintuitive power, at, wisdom at, at play. And it's this reality that God has chosen to display his wisdom through this mysteri- mysterious thing called the cross. So let's look at it, verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. So the whole design that God had, has implemented is, I'm going to show my wisdom off in the world. I've got a plan. I'm going to bring about salvation. But it is going to be so counterintuitive that all of the wisdom in the world is going to be frustrated by this reality. That people are going to assess it and go, that doesn't seem to be right. It seems foolish but God is showing his true wisdom here. Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the age? Where are the smartest people in the world? Did they come up with this? Could they perceive this? Did they anticipate that this was the plan? No, none of them had this prediction that this is what God was going to do. The wisdom of the world falls short in coming up with this beautiful plan that God has. And so even the smartest people in the world do not come up with this plan, but this is God's plan. He's going to save us through the, through the cross. So, you know, who's, who's the smartest person that you've ever come in contact with? When you think about that and you think about the people that you've in, encountered and, you know, who are the people that just come to mind and you go, man, this person is so intelligent, so wise, so smart. 
And you think about that person, and the Bible is saying, no matter how incredible they may seem, their wisdom is limited. And it doesn't add up to this incredible, powerful plan of God. So for me, I, I thought of um, one of my high school teachers. Now, I was a very poor student because I didn't care. I was just a skater dude that kind of moseyed around, did my thing, and showed up where I thought I needed to be. But I didn't really care about school. And I had a class with Mr. Muldowney, and he was a psychology teacher at Hananiga. And I go into his class, and I begin to interact with this teacher And I begin to become very impressed by him because he's so smart and so witty and so perceptive. And so he he gives all of us nicknames. Every class member, he comes up with a nickname. So I'm Tree Boy because my parents own a Christmas tree farm. Hey, Tree Boy, how's it going today? So I come in there and he begins to ask these very kind of probing questions. And I begin to realize this guy can read my mind. Like he's so smart, he knows what I'm thinking. So I'd actually be coming to class with like a nervous excitement. Like, okay, I'm about to interact with maybe the smartest dude that I've ever encountered before, and he's going to read my mind. So I'm very like careful with what I share and, you know, very cautious about the stuff that I'm like, does he, does he know what I'm thinking right now? Because he was so wise and intelligent, and it left such an impression on me, this teacher, and how great he was as a teacher and, and as an individual, it left such an impression on me. And when I went to college, I actually started down the track of, I majored in psychology um, because, of, because of Mr. Muldowney. So the, maybe one of the most intelligent, one of the most witty, one of the most perceptive people that I've ever met, when, when, the, when I read this Bible passage, I'm reminded, as smart as that guy is, his system of thought doesn't compare to the system of the gospel. As smart as the smartest people in the entire world may be, and and as impressed as we might be by them, what they are able to offer is limited. And the true wisdom and the true power is not found in accumulating more and more information, but it is in understanding what God has done in the sending of his son. That's where the true power and the true wisdom is, and God designed it in such a way that the wisdom of God frustrates the the wisdom of the world. Look at verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The world looks at the cross and they go, this is ridiculous. This is silly, but this is actually the way of salvation. It is the wisest thing that we could embrace. And for many, it is a stumbling block and it is foolish. And we see that in verses 22 and 23. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. Here's what we have as Christians. We have a message that that is requiring of faith for us to apprehend it. And the world might be evaluating Christianity and they might be looking at us and saying, I can't buy that. That to me seems ridiculous. It seems foolish. So for the Jews, they wanted signs. They wanted something tangible. They had expectations. The Jews believed that the Messiah was going to come and bring liberation, to bring freedom from their oppressors and bring military strength and help them to be the nation that God intended for them. They thought that he was going to bring judgment on a a wide scale. That's how they would read their Old Testaments. And God had a different plan, and it was one where he 
divided up his, his comings. In the first instance, he came humbly. He came as this kind of obscure Nazar, you know, Nazarene, whatever, carpenter that most people didn't know about. And the Jews looked at him and they said, there's no way he's the Messiah. There's no way he could be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come and do incredible things. He's going to judge the earth. But the plan of God was that he would come initially with that humility and he would die on a cross and he will come again and he will bring his justice and he will set things right. But we're waiting for that day to come right now. And so the Jews look at that and they go, that's a stumbling block. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. I mean, think about a hero who dies. A hero who's supposed to be the epitome of strength and power and might. And, you know, we're trying to follow this this hero, and then he goes to a cross and he dies, which is why most of the disciples were staggered by that. They thought it was game over, and they went back to fishing. It doesn't make sense to them. To the Jews, they wanted signs. To the Greeks, they wanted a persuasive argument. They had um, people who would sit around in the marketplace and have debates, and for us, it's kind of like TED Talks. They'd have these people who would present, and then they'd interact with each other, and they were looking for the tightest, most persuasive argument, and they look at Christianity, and they go, well, that's not it. Like, the, the messengers of Christianity, they're not good at this rhetoric. They're not good at this public presentation, so that clearly cannot be the wisdom of God. Today, we have people who sit in judgment. You know, these ideas didn't just go away with the Jews and with the Greeks. Today, we have many people who look at Christianity and still judge it based off of their own ideas, their own paradigms. And so people look at Christianity and they go, I can't buy that. I read the Bible. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't fit my preferences. It doesn't fit my paradigm. And we begin to say, it's foolish then. It's, it's unintelligible. This can't be the way of God. But God, in his wisdom and in his love, he shows us it is true wisdom. It is true power. So the Jews are stumbled over it. The Greeks are having a hard time with it. Look at verses 24 and 25. But us, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That's where we land as Christians. We come down on this reality that even if the rest of the world looks at Christianity and judges it and says, this is foolish, we understand it to be the true power of God, that this is the way of salvation, that this is what we do. We trust in a crucified and resurrected Savior. But that is the wisdom of the message. The second thing that we see here is that there is power in our experience of the gospel message. So not only is the message powerful in and of itself, but when we trust in it, it changes people. Um, and it changes people who, who aren't noteworthy or impressive. So the rest of the world is thinking true success, true power, true wisdom will show up in a very noteworthy way. And Paul here is saying, yeah, but look at us. Look at our church. Look at the kind of people who have accepted this message. God seems to favor the lowly. He seems to favor the, the people who are low on the totem pole of society. So look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. 
Not many were of noble, noble birth. Not many of us, when we look at who we were, when we were called, can say, we are these incredible people that God is lucky to have us on his team. The reality is, God seems to use weak, ordinary, sometimes nobodies to accomplish his purposes, and he does that by design. He, he's not opposed to using noteworthy people, by the way. George Whitfield grew up in a very affluent family. He was of noble birth, and he became a preacher. And he said of this passage, I am so thankful to God for that M, because it doesn't say not any of you, but not many of you. And he said, I'm glad that I'm in that minority of influential, noteworthy, noble people. Um, but but isn't it, doesn't it seem to be the case that God ordinarily uses regular people? And that's the point here, that God looks at us and he, he's, he's able to leverage our weaknesses. And, and the fact that we don't have this huge wealth of you know, talent and, and um, you know, influence, and he uses us in a profound way, and that's what he, I think, prefers to do. So this week, I don't know if you were paying attention, and I'm not about to assess this at all, but Kanye West released a new album. And uh, you know, he released an album called Jesus is King, and he's publicly professing his faith in Christ. And um, here's the thing where I think a lot of Christians get hung up on. We, because we've not been discipled in the way of the cross, we begin to feel like this is it. This is a revival. If we've got Kanye on our team, yeah, things are really going to happen now. But the truth is, the Bible right here is telling us God can use influential, noble, noteworthy people, but that's not the ordinary way it works. He can use the Constantines who are leading a nation and make, you know, make it a law that people have to be Christians. He can do that. He can use noteworthy, significant people. But here is the ordinary MO of God. He uses us. He uses ordinary people like us, and he's able to do that. And it actually magnifies the power of the gospel. Because no longer can we credit it to our own strength. We have to credit it to the work of God. That's good news for us. That means we're in. That means we can be used of God in a profound way, that you can go to work this week and you can do something significant for the kingdom because God is able to display his power through our weaknesses. And, and he ordinarily uses people like us to accomplish his purposes. So let's celebrate that and lean into it. Let's embrace our quirks and our weirdnesses and our limitations. And let's say, look, God can use me. And at the end of the day, he'll, he'll get all kinds of glory because he's using somebody like me. So why does he do this? He does this to nullify the wisdom of the world. Look at verses 27 and 28. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So he's saying he is doing this by design so that we are not tempted to think, we did it. It was our talent. It was our strength. It was our ability that accomplished this. He uses weakness to display his strength. That is the way of the cross. He uses what appears to be a loss to display his victory. So he wants us to embrace this way of the cross and to evaluate things accordingly, that when we are weak, God can use us incredibly. And, and that means that we can't boast about what we're doing. So as a church, you know, I sit around and I think about how we can be sustainable long-term. 
and how we can grow and how we can bring on more staff members and do these different things so that we can be around for a long, long time. And, and a lot of the things that are being published and promoted are basically, here's the way to success. You get the slick vision, you get the slick strategy, you do all these different things, and then you could be successful. But here's what the Bible is telling us. That stuff is important. But the primary thing is the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is there that we place our boast, where we place our hope. And we don't boast in our own strength. We don't boast in the things that we accomplish. God has done this in a way that it nullifies the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So I don't know if you've heard the, uh, the story of Gideon and the Midianites from Judges, but there was an individual that God said, I'm going to use you to rescue my people. You're going to be a military leader. And he happened to be hiding out from the opposing army when God spoke to him. So he kind of went like this, me? Are you sure you want to use me? And God said, yes, I will use you. And he was still very fearful. And God told him, I want you to gather uh, the army of the people of God, and I want you to go to battle against the Midianites. And so, you know, he got this huge group together, and God looks at him and he goes, there's way too many people here. I know the army, the opposing army is way bigger than this, but we don't need this many people. And what does he do? God sends some home. If anyone is fearful, go home. A bunch of them go home. God looks at it again and he goes, that's still way too many people. So he says, take them down to the river and watch how they drink and separate them out, whether they you know, uh, draw water up with their hand or whether they get down, lap it up with their tongue. But you know, certain people go home as well and they end up with 300 people. And why does God do that? What does he say there in Judges chapter 7 and 8? He said he was doing it so that there would be no question as to where the strength and the power and the victory came from. There would be no chance that Gideon was going to boast in his, you know, relig- or his, his military expertise. It was all going to be the work of God. And they, they fight and they win. And everyone gets all excited. But here's the, here's the human heart. Here's what we do. This is why we so desperately need these teachings. Even after they won and they recognized God did this, what did they do? They started bringing all these gifts to Gideon, saying, man, we love you. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for helping us be victorious. And they give him gold and jewels and all this stuff. And, and then he makes something with it. He makes it, it's called an ephod. It's like a vest. It's like a religious garment. And he makes it and it's beautiful. And then he hangs it up and then they start to worship it. They start to worship a vest that he made. And they start to treat that thing as if it were the object of you know, their, their worship, their concern. And it became, as it's described in, in Judges chapter 8, verse 27, it became a snare for the people of God. Why did they do that? You know, you read a story like that and you go, that's just ridiculous. Why did they do that? And here's why. The human heart gravitates towards something that we can put our name on and something that we can own. It gravitates toward trusting in something that we can fashion with our own hands. And instead of relying on what God does, we rely on what we can contribute. And then that becomes the significant thing. So God here is reminding us the way of the cross is one where we trust in what he has done and we don't boast in anything else. We don't boast in our achievements or our accomplishments, but we boast in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 30 and 31. It is because of him that you are in Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
He's saying Jesus Christ is it. If you're a Christian, you think about him, you celebrate him, you worship him, because it is because of him that you are in Christ. And Jesus is for you everything that you need. John Stott points out that this is kind of pointing at the three different tenses of salvation. There's a reality that God saved us and that he's saving us presently and that one day he ultimately will save us and bring us into glory. And Jesus is the one who accomplishes all of that. So we've been saved. We can look at the day when we trusted in Christ and God declared us righteous. He looks at us and he says, you are right because I see in you the righteousness of my own son, Jesus Christ. There's a day when we were saved. But all of us in here that have been Christians for any amount of time, we know we still need a lot more saving. There's some work to be done. We're not holy yet. And though we might try certain things and we might hope to grow in certain ways, there, there are still things that we wish we were a lot further along on. But God is saving us. Jesus is saving us. He is making us holy. And Jesus is accomplishing that as we trust him and rely on him and align our lives to him. And then one day, ultimately, he's going to redeem us. He's going to save us. He's going to come back and glorify us and we'll be with him forever. But listen, all of that is him. All of that is what he is doing for us as we place our faith in him. And we've got work to do, obviously, but, but it's all about him. So when we, get, when we boast, what should our boast be? Jesus Christ and him crucified. The only thing that we trust in is what he is doing in us. The only thing that we celebrate as truly significant is the wisdom and power of God on display in the cross. As a church, this has to be a central theme that we really do believe that it is the cross of Jesus Christ that saves people. And then we need to obviously order our ministry accordingly. And that's the third lesson that I want to show you here in the text. The third thing is, we, if, if the cross is so powerful, then ministry ought to reflect the cross. And this applies to us as a church, but it also applies in the way that we do personal ministry. Now, Paul makes this point at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He recognized that the power is in the cross, so he made that the central feature of the way he did ministry. He didn't come thinking, I'm going to outsmart the philosophers. In, in the metropolitan city. I'm going to polish my message so that it's so eloquent that people walk away going, man, Paul is an awesome communicator. Now, what does he make the emphasis of his ministry? The, the cross of Jesus Christ. I, I, I made that, Paul is saying, I made that the central theme. And I came in that way trying to communicate that truth because that is where the power is. One of the most important sermons on preaching that I've ever heard uh, was by a guy named Timothy Keller, and it's titled "How Preaching to Change People in Their Seats. Preaching to Change People in Their Seats. And here's what he's talking about. Some of the ideas here from 1 Corinthians, and bas- the basic premise is, if you preach Christ crucified, you don't have to wait for that to have an effect on somebody. It is so powerful that the preaching moment becomes a redemptive event. If the Spirit of God is taking the Word of God and the emphasis on Christ crucified 
people will be changed on the spot. So you come to church, you open the Bibles, he's talking about preaching in a way where people, by the Spirit of God, through the power of God, are changed on the spot. He quoted another guy, a a late pastor named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Lloyd-Jones put it like this. He said, I don't mind if people are taking notes at the beginning of of my sermon, but if they're taking notes at the end, I'm not doing my job. And here's what he's suggesting. There's a point in a sermon, there's a point when the emphasis on the crucified Savior becomes more than a concept. It becomes a reality. And, as, and when that happens, you're not taking notes anymore. You put your pencil down. When that happens, you're worshiping. You're recognizing what God has done for you and is having a profound effect on your heart and your mind, and it's changing you. And that's what Paul is suggesting. If the cross is that powerful, that it can change people right where they're at, then, then the ministry needs to emphasize that. It needs to be about that. It needs to be designed to accomplish that purpose. And, and then even the way in which ministry is done, the manner in which it's done, should reflect the way of the cross. So look with me at verses 3 and 4. It says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He's saying, look, the way that I preached, it wasn't, you know, me trying to impress people, but I simply presented Jesus Christ crucified. I came with weakness and fear and trembling, but I came with the powerful message. Now, I feel that this morning, especially for some reason, as I'm preaching, I'm going, man, this is really poor preaching. But this is really powerful stuff. And as Spurgeon used to say, they might preach a better sermon than me, but they can't preach a better Savior than I can. The the power is not in how it's delivered. The power is in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We we need to be confident that we're designing our ministry in a way that says, that's going to change people. And if people walk away from church and they go, man, Cor, he's so good at whatever, you know, that church is so great at this or that, we're missing out on the fact that God is calling us to celebrate and elevate the person and work of Christ. One of my professors, he put it like this, this is Dr. Carson, he said, as long as people are impressed by your powerful personality and impressive gifts, there's very little, there's very little space left for you to impress them with a crucified Savior. If you go to church and you walk away being impressed by everything that happens there, but you're not thinking about the Lord. Are we really doing what we're supposed to be doing? The power is in him and what he's done for us on the cross. And that's the whole point of this thing. We see the purpose there in verse 5. Look, look with me at verse 5. It says, so that your faith. It's all done in this way. It's all designed this way. It's all set up this way. It's all rigged so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. What we want then is for the faith that we have to be rightly placed in Jesus Christ. We want our faith to rest in him, confidently knowing that what he has done for us on the cross is the power and wisdom of God. So the message of the cross is powerful in itself. It is powerful in our personal experiences. It is powerful when we put it to work in our ministries. So shouldn't this powerful message be communicated with simplicity? And shouldn't we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who is willing to die for us? So I'm going to pray now, and I'm going to ask that the band would come back up. 
and uh, we'll, we will... Um, I know that in a space like this with this many people, there, there are some who maybe have never trusted Christ like this, never surrendered to him. So let me pray and, uh, and ask that you, you would have the courage to move forward in faith. God, I pray right now that by your spirit, if anyone in here has not put their confidence in you, but they've put it in something else, they believe that Christianity is just something that they can kind of tack on to their lives, but they don't see the cross as kind of the, the reality, the central theme. Would you help us to, would you help them to take a step of faith right now and to make it public and to talk to other people, give them courage to be vocal about what's happening in their hearts right now. But as a church, God, we want to be all about this thing. We, we want to be really good at communicating the cross in a way that leads people to saving faith in our Lord and Savior. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.